you have your Bibles, please open to Mark chapter 9. This evening, we're going to go from Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 41. To begin by reading God's word, to ask the Lord to bless and use the message. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. From there, they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands, into hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, When he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him from, uh, we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word and another opportunity to look at the life of Christ. And Lord, may it humble us to see just how great of a God uh, you are. And just looking at the life of Savior, we model uh, just his um, holiness, his character, and his devotion to you. And Lord, help us be faithful in every sense of the word. We thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. No matter what kind of categories in all things in the world, there's always a list of who is the greatest or what is the greatest. Sometimes there are things like who is the greatest athlete, who is the greatest basketball player, who is the greatest three-point shooter, who is the greatest fill-in-the-blank. Sometimes it's not just people, sometimes there are events as well. What is the greatest tragedy of all time? What is the greatest American war? Or in other mediums like music, what is the greatest song of all time? What is the greatest album or the greatest movie? So forth and so forth. We even have a term for it. We call it a goat, the greatest of all time. And the reason why I think we love these lists, although it's fun to read, is because there's a comparative component to it. When you say that one thing is the greatest, you're implying that there is something else that is not so great. When you say that this is the greatest one-hit wonder, you're saying that some one-hit wonders, although 
good. They're just not that great. There's always something to compare it to. And I think for these things like movies and TV shows and music, these things are trivial. And it's totally fine to make these comparisons because they're completely subjective. Sadly, however, I think in our own hearts, sometimes even in in the church setting, we often like to compare ourselves with other people. We think in our own hearts, we may not say it out loud, but we might think to ourselves, I am the greatest theologian of the church. I am the most faithful attender. I serve the most compared to everybody else. I pray the most. I I attend the most church things. I read the Bible the most. And it is in the spirit of pride that we make these type of comparisons. We make these conclusions that we are better because we actually elevate ourselves. In this passage here, Jesus is trying his best to teach this valuable lesson on humility before he goes to the cross. At this point in the narrative, we're more than halfway through and he's moving towards leaving Galilee and leaving Capernaum and then heading towards the cross and he has only a certain amount of time left with his disciples and he wants to teach them a very valuable lesson, that is humility. Last week we learned about how the demoniac, the child that was possessed by the demon, uh, they were unable to cast out. And the reason why they were unable to cast out this kind of demon is because they were depending on their own strength. They were not trusting in the Lord, although they, were, they, although they have the title of apostle and followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, they depended more on their own strength than they did depending on the Lord. And it made them incompetent in terms of doing the things that the Lord had charged them to do. Now, we're moving towards the end, and as I said, this, the Lord is trying to teach them what it means to be a humble servant. And this isn't to say in our own lives that we're not allowed to have ambition, but how we go about that ambition oftentimes will lead us to pride. I think as we look through this text and this narrative here, it's an important lesson for us as well to learn about humility. Humility is something that is not natural to us. Pride is natural to us. It's something that we need to learn and constantly kill because it impacts our life. So when we look at this narrative, I'm just going to have these two scenes for us, and then I'll draw some application for us at the end. But the first scene is this. We call it, we'll just call it the pride exposed. That the apostles' pride was exposed. We see that from verse 30 to 32. Notice, from there, they went out and began to go through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know about it. In the Gospel of Luke, it talks about how they're headed towards Jerusalem, and Jesus did not want, uh, the, uh, didn't want to draw a crowd again. He, so he, it's implied here that he took the 12 and kind of snuck off and tried to get some more alone time with them. Because if the apostles were supposed to be the foundation in which they built the church, they need to have a valuable, they need to learn all that they can before Jesus goes to the cross. If they can't be humble when Jesus is there, they're not going to be humble when Jesus is gone. He wanted more alone time to teach his disciples, and Jesus is fighting for time. He knows that his time on earth is running out, and it's a crucial lesson for them to learn before he goes on the cross. 
This lesson they need to live by themselves and pass it on to the future generations of believers as well. It says in verse 31, He was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. This is not the first time that Jesus has told them that he is going to die. You remember in chapter 8, verse 31 to 33, when he asked Peter, who do people say that I am? And they told, and Peter responded by telling him, some people think you're a prophet, a good teacher, or John the Baptist, resurrected. And he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. And he responds, Jesus responds by saying, you answered correctly. And he tells them that he's going to go and get killed. He's going to be delivered and three days again rise from the grave. And then Peter rebukes him. So this is not the first time that Jesus has told them that he's going to be delivered over to the sons of men, or to the hands of uh, men. In fact, later on, he'll tell this lesson again in chapter 10, verse 32 to 45. And he tells them this, and it seems like they still don't get it. This, and it's fascinating how Jesus phrased this. He said he is to be delivered. This is a legal term. It's often used to describe someone being handcuffed or chained, and then, and then they will take them and hand them over to, some, to, to another person or to the judge or to the prison to go to prison. That's kind of what he's used. This is the word that's used here. He's being delivered into the hands of men. And it's fascinating because he's telling them right away that this is going to be, it's going to be people that's going to be ending up killing Jesus. They are, he's going to be handed over to the people. And the disciples clearly did not understand what was going on. Because they said that he's going to be killed. And then, and then he's, and, so, and Jesus is actually using a third person here. He's saying he's going to, they're going to kill him. And when he has been killed, and this is an actual death, this is going to be an actual event. He's going to talk about this. This is really a prophecy here. And he's really speaking of, even a foreshadow of how the Romans, when they looked at Jesus on the cross, they said, he is dead. He's telling them all of this. And he said, three days later, he will rise again. And at the time during Jesus' ministry, I think the apostles understood that it's possible to come back from the grave. It's not, like, like, it's not foreign to them. They've seen Jesus resurrect other people. They know even about the Old Testament, how Elijah even resurrected certain people. But they're wondering, on all of those situations, there's always someone else right, or causing someone to come back from the grave. But Jesus is just saying he will rise three days later. They don't know who is going to do this. They don't, they don't understand that Jesus himself is going to come out of the grave and he's, he doesn't depend on anyone. He would have said that they did not understand the statement, verse 32. This is the idea that they were, they completely, they were completely unaware of what Jesus is saying. They were like a deer in front of a headlight. They, they didn't have a grid to comprehend what Jesus is trying to say. And it said that they were afraid to ask him. And this is interesting because, again, they, they've seen this Jesus talk about this, but they don't get it. And they're probably thinking back before when Peter, uh, when they had the, when Peter had this conversation, and then when Peter responded, Jesus rebuked them. Maybe some disciples kind of learned their lesson that maybe you should not challenge Christ on this. But they just did not understand what was going on. And the, and the journey continues. Verse 30, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, when were you discussing on the way? 
Capernaum is where they had the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, and it says here that he was in the house, and it seems to be a place that they're familiar with, and it's most likely that commentators think that this is probably Peter's house. He asked him, what were you guys talking about? We're on this long journey together. What were you guys talking about? And it wasn't like Jesus did not know, right? Jesus was omniscient. He understood what was going on, but this is really a lot of ways for the apostles to come clean about what was going on. Kind of like when God asked Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? It wasn't like God did not know, but he gave them an opportunity to repent. He was aware of what they're discussing. That's why in verse uh, 34 said, but they kept silent. I think there's a part of them that understood that what they were discussing, what they were talking about, was kind of embarrassing. They knew that there was something off about this, but they didn't want to admit what they're talking about. It says that for on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. And when it says discuss here, don't think in terms of like having a like a nice little debate. They were arguing with one another. You imagine Peter saying, no, I'm the best, I'm the greatest because I was picked first. And John's like, wait a minute, no, I am the one that Jesus loves. And they're arguing and bickering like little children. They were arguing with one another on who is the greatest. And it's, it's like they missed the point. Jesus is talking about how he's going to be hung on the cross, he's going to be lifted up and nailed to a cross. And these disciples here are talking about who should get the place of prominence. Who should be the one that's the greatest and be lifted up in their own egos? And Jesus responds. It says, verse 35, sitting down. Uh, this is really a sign of authority. And usually, I, I know it's opposite from what we do usually. Uh, teachers in the Old Testament time, especially Jesus' time, they would actually sit. And then everyone else would stand. So it would have been reversed. I kind of want to try it one day where you guys all stand. And I sit on the floor and then I teach you guys God's word. Maybe we'll do it next time. But here, Jesus is sitting down. He's getting into his little teacher mode here. He called the 12 to them and said, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Again, they got everything backwards. And you have to understand, in the lives of the, in that time, the apostles, they were socially on the lowest totem pole. They understood that their other people, like the Pharisees and different God, people that are above them. So when they said that, when Jesus came and said, you're going to be my apostles, you're going to be my, this, you're my main group of 12, it puffed them up. They realized, well, if I don't get that Pharisee title or the scribes or some sort of religious leader, at least I have this title of the apostles. They thought that they can find prominence in just being, having the title of apostle. And we see this even in the context of the church. Sometimes there are people that may not be doing well or they not, may not be in high positions outside of the church. And oftentimes inside the church, they, they become very controlling because they feel this is the only place that they can exercise some sort of authority and dominance. And it's almost like a way to just... They may seem humble on the outside of the church, but inside the church, you can see their own hearts, that they're really not as humble as they seem on the outside. And that's what the apostles were doing. They're individuals that, compared to the Pharisees, they, they, didn't want to be, they didn't get that title. That's totally fine, but they at least wanted this title of an apostle. And Jesus puts them, uh, he sits down, he's talking to them, he says, if anyone wants to be first, 
This is the idea of be who, whoever wants to be the, the best overall. And this is, he contrasts this, he shall be last of all and servant of all. This is radical servanthood. He's telling them, you want to be the absolute best, if you want to be the, known as the greatest apostle, you have to be willing to die to self. This word servant is the same idea for deacon. This is, and it's not just deacon in terms of a title. It's a deacon in terms of this guy has a desire to serve. He loves to care for other people. That is true humility. Now, this doesn't mean that he's a, a pushover, but he, he understands what he has to do, and he's doing it joyfully to serve those in the body. He has true humility, and true humility is not true humiliation. I think sometimes we have a wrong view of, a, of a humility. We think it's like a prideful people tend to elevate in terms of all the things that they do well. People that, like are, that have false humility, they always brag about things that they can't do. And both of them are, are, are rooted in pride. They're not trying to make a name for themselves. They're not trying to try, uh, elevate themselves in, any, in every sense of the word. A true servant has an attitude of self-forgetfulness. A true servant has an attitude of self-forgetfulness. And I wonder if you think that way about yourself. I wonder if you think that way in terms of serving. When you think about serving in the church, are you serving because you're trying to make a name for yourself in the context of the church? Or do you serve because you love the body, you understand that the Lord has gifted you in a unique way, and you see that the Lord can use you to help meet the needs of the church, so you do it, not because you try to win the approval of other people around you, not because you try to obtain some sort of title here in the church, but rather you do it because you understand that this is what it means to be a servant. Again, you, I can't read your own heart. I, I mean, there's so many of you this last week that served in day camp, and I thank the Lord for it, but I can't read your own heart. I can't read your heart to say, no, you did it out of right motive, you did it out of wrong motive. You have to ask yourself, why do you do the things that you do? Do you have an attitude of self-forgetfulness? And Jesus then illustrates this. He, he says, taking a child, he sat him before him, and taking him in his arm, he said to them. Now, before I continue, notice this is taking a child. I know that a lot of you, that you see my kids, you love to carry them, and it's totally fine. Just don't leave the building with them. I'm very thankful that how many of you love the kids in our church and, and all of us as parents. Speaking on behalf of all the parents, we're so thankful for you and the way that you serve. But back then, it's similar to, I guess, non-believers now, young non-believers now, what they th- how they think about children. They think about children in terms of like, oh, they're, they're annoying, they're in the way, uh, they're useless, they're, they can't do anything. They can't repay. They can't help. So he's, Jesus is bringing this child as an illustration to them. He sets them before him. He tells them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. He's picking up this child, and it's most likely probably like a, like a one- or two-year-old. So he's, he's able to set him up, so he, I mean, he's, he's, he's big enough to keep in his arms, because it's taking him in his arms, it's kind of like the cradle position. And he uses a child, and he tells him, if, if you receive this child in my name, whoever receives me, or you, if you receive this child, receives me. And why a child? Because again, a child is immature. They're weak. They can't repay you. And I think this parable, this parable here, he's trying to use this 
child is a parable to what a young, immature Christian looks like. I think Matthew 18 has this parallel count, and, and right after, in Matthew 18, when he says this, right after he talks about how it's better to have a, a, a stone wrapped around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So when he's talking about this child here, don't think in terms of, like, my kids or the kids in the church. Think of it in terms of Jesus speaking as a young believer. Like, think about a young believer, a very immature believer who doesn't seem to understand doctrine, doesn't know how the church works, he doesn't understand the things of God. He's just a young believer. And Jesus said, you need to receive this person the way that you would receive me. And it's just an interesting picture because you see Christ holding this child. And if this will be a parallel to young, immature believers, then you understand that Christ receives even the weakest believer. Christ receives even the most immature believer. But somehow, in our own hearts, in our own pride, we oftentimes are impatient with those that are immature in the faith. And Jesus said, whoever receives me does not receive me, but, he, but him who sent me. So he's making this connection here that if you take in and love this young, immature believer, you're not just only taking in me, but the, the one who sent me, which is God the Father. And it says here, receives. This is this idea of welcoming them or including them. So the question that you have to ask yourself is this, how do you or how are you caring for the weakest believer in the church? Who, how are you caring for the one that's the most immature, like they just don't understand uh, how the things in the church goes? They don't understand why things like discipleship matters? Those are the ones that we need to give a, a, a special attention to. And it may be difficult and it may take a lot of time, but we're willing to do all of those things because, of, uh, because we're willing to serve. And it's, and it's very convicting because he's saying the way that you receive this immature believer is how you will receive Christ. And I wonder if, that's, if that comes to mind in the way that you interact with other people in the church. Oftentimes, when we, think, we don't think about the other person as someone made in the image of God and that they're actually a reflection of our, even an immature believer, they reflect our Savior. We think of them as like, like our sibling, which they are, but we don't treat them in a way that we would treat our Savior. Would you be unkind with your words to our Savior? Would you be impatient with our Savior? If it was Jesus, how would you treat this individual knowing that our Lord is watching? And he's even saying here, if you treat a non, if you treat another, how you treat another believer is how you would treat me. We tend to treat people in our own pride, either because we want something in return or we treat people based on what we think they're worth. We treat people sometimes with hoping that we get some sort of connections or um, some sort of uh, some, something that we can get out of the relationship or we treat them because we don't think they are worthy of our time or we only treat them with a special care because we think they're worthy of our time. And however you measure someone, all of that stems from pride. And yet Jesus is telling the believers that you need to receive this child. If you receive him, then you receive me. It's almost like if you think about someone at the gym, he's like this buff, swole dude, and he sees like a nerdy guy in the gym. He's willing to go and help them out. He doesn't suspend his time just flexing in front of the mirror and showing off on Instagram. He sees someone that needs help, and he goes and willing to serve them. 
Or you think of it in inverse, that Jock is in this like nerdy program and every one of their nerds, so then he's like the one that's actually the lowly one and he's like that nerd willing to spend time with that Jock to help them. That's that spirit of, of serving other people. And then we know as a church, we should not think each other about in those terms. We shouldn't see each other as, oh, this person has this kind of job or he makes that type of money or he, has, or he or she has this type of position in society. We should see each other as brothers and sisters made in the image of God, redeemed by Christ, and has value because not, because, not just because they're made in the image of God, but because Christ has redeemed them. That's how the world thinks, and that should not be how we as brothers and sisters think about each other in the context of the church. So that's the first scene. It's the pride exposed. And then we'll look at pride confronted. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not, he was not following, and you hope that John will say something else like not following you. But notice the word he's here he uses. He's, he was not following us. See, he's elevating himself. He's elevating that position of apostles because Jesus told them that I give you permission to heal people, to cast out demons. And then they got to their heads. They thought, yes, that means we have this unique power that other people do not have. And they, they see someone, and the, the, the scriptures don't tell us who this individual is. But John remembers, and he recalls, and he tells them, he, he asks Jesus, why did this happen? What are we supposed to do with him? Because I think John wants to understand why this guy is stealing glory from them. He can't fathom that other people can do what they are doing. And this is just reality. He's just not aware that God can save other people. Now, again, that comes from an attitude of pride. He thinks that he's the only one that can do a certain type of ministry. You can see the natural parallel into our own lives. Can you not? Think about the new person that visits the church or, the, or, or joins the membership of the church and they're serving our church in a certain way and you become almost jealous. How come that person gets to serve in this position and I don't? I've been here for a while. I'm faithful in all of these different ways. And you grumble in your heart and you get upset instead of being thankful to the Lord that the Lord provided other people to help build the church. The Lord had provided different means and resources through individuals. And in your own bitterness and jealousy and really pride, you wonder why do they get to do this ministry? This is all stem from pride. And all in reality, the, what Peter, what John is asking here is why is that person stealing our glory? We know in, our church, in the church setting, we can feel that way as well. Whenever we make these comparisons of why that person has this position, why is that person dating, why is that person doing this, why does that person have that, that's out of our own pride and jealousy. We want glory for ourselves because we are comparing ourselves to others. This is what Jesus responds in verse 39, but Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and, and be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. He's telling the disciples, don't worry about it. There are other people who will be able to do these miracles. And Jesus is saying what this person is doing, he's casting out demons. He's doing the right thing because he represents the right God. And notice again, this lack of compassion 
that these apostles have. They're wondering about their own, why can't they do certain abilities instead of thinking, oh, praise the Lord, they're casting out demons. They just saw a child was released from the bondage of a, of a demon, and instead of being praising the Lord the fact that this one person is healed or multiple people are healed, they're thinking, why not me? Why can't I do what he just did? Or why is this person able to do it? He doesn't have the right to do these things. And Jesus is telling them, don't hinder him. Don't be a stumbling block. Don't be a barrier. Because Jesus is just basically telling them that, yeah, there are going to be people that do miracles in my name, and they're not against us. Which is what in verse 40, for he who is not against us is for us. They are on the same team, but in their own pride, they think of themselves as just the exclusive elite Christians, and everyone else are just the, they're just supposed to watch them and praise them for it. Verse 41, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. And this is his hospitality. He's saying that if whoever is willing to show you this kind of hospitality because you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he will receive a heavenly reward. Just on a side note, this is Jesus referring to himself as the Messiah, as the Christ. And I know liberals tend to think, like, when did Jesus, where did Jesus call himself a savior? Well, here's one of those verses that you can put in your back pocket. So what does this tell us? How are we supposed to apply this text into our lives? If pride is an issue, which I think uh, just looking at text we can see, what do we need to learn about pride so that we can combat it? Here's some points of application or just understanding what pride is. First, pride is divisive. Pride is very divisive. Just notice how, Peter, how John uh, was trying to get Jesus to basically rebuke or find this individual and tell him to stop it. Stop casting out demons because you're not one of us. And Yet, in the own context of the church, when we think about ourselves, when we elevate ourselves, there can never be unity in the church. Pride, cannot, pride and unity cannot coexist with one another. Pride seeks to elevate yourself, whereas unity seeks to treat everyone equally and elevate all, everyone together to serve. If this church wants unity and peace, and I believe that's what Scripture calls us to have, Ephesians 4 talks about how we need to have a, a unity with, with, all of, with, with one mind and all have the same goals together. We cannot be prideful with the things that, with, with, in the way that we think. If this church wants unity and peace, there cannot be pride. In fact, I would argue that every interpersonal conflict in this church can be done and away with if everyone is humble. If there is no pride in anyone, we don't need biblical counseling because there will be no conflict with one another. Husbands will not have problems with their wife if they're both humble. People in the church will not have bitterness or anger or interpersonal conflict because of humility. Because pride is very destructive. It seeks to split people apart. And this is why if you want unity in the church, you must have humility. And all of us, if we were to evaluate ourselves, there's bound to be some sort of inkling of pride in our own hearts because we love ourselves more than we love the Lord. Which leads to our second thing about pride is that pride is something that God hates. Pride, yes, is divisive, and pride is also something that God hates. You're familiar with 1 Peter 5.5, 5, and 
in, in James chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, it says, uh, the Lord is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride seeks to glorify the self. It attempts to rob God of all of his glory. It seeks to put yourself in that position where you think you're greater than God. You know more than God. That you think that everything that you do make, should elevate your own intellect, your own ability. And you forget for a moment that God is the one that has given you all of these things. Think of all the things that you're able to accomplish you can only accomplish and have this life because God has given this to you. And yet, in our own pride, in our, to our own shame, we tend to elevate ourselves. God will not share his glory with another. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5, writes, Everyone who is proud of heart Proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. See, there are things that the Lord despise, and pride is one of those things that God hates because it seeks to put God lower than yourself. That's why in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 and 17, there are six things which the Lord hates, yet seven which are an abomination to him. The first one is on this list in verse 17 here of Proverbs chapter 6 is haughty eyes. It's, it's pride. It's looking at yourself and elevating yourself over the Lord. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Uncharity, uncharitable anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was pride that the devil became the devil. It is a complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is something that we all struggle with, and one way to motivate us to kill it is to remember that God hates pride. This is something that God hates. God hates those, and he opposes those that are proud. Not only is pride divisive, or pride is something that God hates, but our last truth about pride to help us overcome pride and return away from pride is that pride is not Christ-like. Pride is not Christ-like. In, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it's like a key verse in the book of Mark, it describes Jesus as coming into the world not to be served, but to serve those and give a ransom for many. Philippians chapter 2 describes, uh, we know this, uh, uh, but we sometimes often forget Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. That implies that the reason why we think we don't want to serve, we don't want to put others in of ourselves, is because we think highly of ourselves. Later on in this passage, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed him on him the name which is above all name. See, the life of the Christian is a life of humility, and Jesus demonstrated that the most in the way that he lived and died for us. He, it is not becoming of Christ when we elevate ourselves. And consider the life of Christ, and you will realize that the attitudes that we have and the anger and the bitterness all stem from pride, and that does not look like our Savior. So many of us show our pride in different ways. We need to consider, just think about even our own salvation, because all that we have in this life are abilities, but the chief thing that God has given us is salvation. He gave us eternal life. And all that we've obtained in life, in eternal life and in this life, is nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do in terms of our natural ability. God has, in his grace, revealed himself to us. He opened our hearts and our eyes to, to see our sin and then behold the cross and makes us humble because we realize that we don't deserve such a love from our Savior. In a sense, a proud Christian is a contradiction. You cannot call yourself a Christian, but yet live a prideful life. It is contrary to Scripture because it counters who Jesus is. How can we think so highly of ourselves and lowly of others when we understand what God has done for us? And even mainly that he humbled himself and died on the cross for us. Richard Sibbs, an old Puritan, said this, Will man be proud after God has been humbled? And I love this quote because it's a reminder of the fact that our God humbled himself and, and entered into this world as a lowly servant. You look at the how Jesus described, he was not someone that people liked to look at. It, in fact, every time he did something miraculous, it's, that's why it surprised so many people because you would never expect someone like, that looks like Jesus to be the Messiah, but yet he is the Savior. He, his appearance looked bad, and when he, he was humbly, humbly submitting to the Lord to the point of death. So he already looked bad, but remember when he was flogged and he was, he was attacked by the Romans and, and he was tortured, he originally did not look bad, it looked even worse. But he did all of that out of the humble spirit because he knew He'd rather do God's will instead of his own, that he laid down his life as an example for all of us of what we need to be. The only cure for pride is humble faith in the humble Savior. Now I hope that you look and reflect upon your life. You think about how you treat one another. You think about how you treat or think about your brothers and sisters in the church. Because remember, in the context here, Jesus is talking about someone that has an immature faith, someone that in your eyes is someone that may not be someone worth your time. But yet Jesus is telling his disciples and instructing us today to receive someone like this, someone that's hard to deal with, someone that just doesn't seem to get it. And why do we do that? Because we see the compassion of our Savior toward even the most immature Christian in the church. And in order to achieve what God instructs us to be the greatest in the kingdom, or the greatest is to be last and a servant of all.
And if that's not you, if that's not you, then you still, by God's grace, have an opportunity, opportunity to confess your pride and, and ask the Lord to show you who you really are in relative to who he is, as opposed to who you are in relative to one another. So let's, ask, let's close in prayer and ask the Lord to make us a humble people. Father God, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for just this example of, of humility. Lord, it is so easy for us to be proud and to elevate our own status, elevate our own abilities, elevate our own talents, all things which you've actually given to us. And Lord, keep us humble, knowing that we deserve nothing but your wrath. But by your grace, we get a, a new breath every, every moment. We get a new life every day. But more importantly, and most importantly, that we have eternal life. Lord, it's only by your grace, not because of our own talents, not because of who we are, that you're willing to rescue us. Teach us humility. Allow us to cast out pride, for this is indeed a great sin that you hate. But Lord, help us to be humble. Help us be humble in the way that we interact with one another, preferring others and seeing others as more important than ourselves. Cause us to have a servant heartedness that does not seek any self-elevation or, or making ourself, our own name known, but rather serving because we want your name to be known. We want you to receive all the glory, Lord. Lord, help us be humble this week. Is your son's name I pray. Amen. Our two discussion questions. First, where is pride most evident in my life? And second, how can pride impact the way I engage other believers?